0: Continuity and change in warfare.
1: Now, in the case of Russia today, Russia is not an ideological adversary in that sense of America. Russia cannot in any way pretend to hope to conquer the entire world and to convert the entire world to a Russian ideology. In the Pacific, it looks a bit different.
0: Lessons from the pandemic and bio-threats of the future.
2: In many ways, pandemics are much more than a health event. The health event is, of course, central, but it's it's the broader implications which are far more profound and impactful.
0: This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast with me, David Rowe. In this week's episode, we start with Yuli Yildrum's conversation about continuity and change in war with Professor Beatrice Heuser. Professor Hoyser this week delivered the 2020 J.G. Gray Oration at the Australian War College. She and Yuli discuss her oration message that we need to rethink many of our long-standing beliefs about warfare.
3: Uh, hello, Professor Beatrice Hueser. Thank you for joining us at ASPE's uh, Policy Guns and Money podcast. As a brief introduction, uh, Professor Huser is the uh, Chair of International Relations at the University of Glasgow. Um, Professor Huser has numerous publications, I think one of which just came out called War, A Genealogy of Western Ideas and Practices uh, through Oxford University Press, uh, with a focus on Uh, why people go to war and how they wage war, what means uh, they choose, what strategies and how they justify them. Professor Hughes is currently visiting the Australian War College uh, to make a series of presentations including the uh, Jeff Gray Oration. Thank you again uh, for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for having me. And it's a delight to talk to you from Canberra, where I'm indeed the Jeff Gray Visiting Professor at the Australian Defence College at the moment. So it's really opposite that we should be talking to each other. Thank you for the invitation.
3: Let's start with something something quite simple then. So why do people go to war?
1: Multiplicity of causes, um, I think best described as a whole series of factors that interact and interplay. And I, I will tell you about what people thought about these causes rather than my own interpretation. People have focused in the past on ideas of good and evil. Is the human being inherently evil? Uh, Is there original sin in every human being? Biologists have focused on primatology and have thought about whether primates go to war, whether it's again hardwired. Evolutional psychologists have thought about how collectivities might have been stuck in some area of History, where they were fighting for or competing for resources with other groups, and that they were driven to competition of a violent sort by a shortage and dearth of resources. Then, quite late on, people started focusing on the question of whether it was not to do with human beings in as a collectivity, but individual leaders, the princes, the governments. Then people started focusing on whether the constitution of states led them to war, were tyrannies, were monarchies more likely to go to war than republics. Later still, people began to think about the system of relations between states, the interstate or inter-entity, inter-polity relationship, whether those were subject to certain laws and certain norms and whether that was the cause. And presumably it's something that is a bit of a mix of all of these.
3: Right. So I find something um, fascinating when I was going through the War College, going through all these numerous uh, publications. The two that stick to my mind are uh, or specifically the um, way of war. So this comes up quite often um, where people talk about, you know, American way of war, the Western way of war and so forth. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, there, there is actually I've got it right here from... Victor Hansen and John Lynn both you know have different views on that. What's your perspective with regards to that?
1: Okay, actually this goes back an awfully long time. It goes back to classical antiquity. Uh, you first have uh, Greeks uh, pronouncing on different ways of war of different nations or different uh, civilizations. And this is then replicated. You find it in Aristotle, you find it Herodotus. You find it then replicated in the late Middle Ages or early Renaissance, as I call it, by a, a lady at the French court called Christine de Pizan who decided that there were different ways of going to war. And you get this reiterated a number of times until it's made particularly famous by... John Lloyd in the 18th century, and then by Clausewitz, and everything is made more famous by Clausewitz because most <laughs> people only really start with Clausewitz. Yeah. And Clausewitz basically, in his book Fame very famously says every age and every civilization has a different way of going to war, has a particular way. That was then taken up by lots of other people. Um, Russell Wagley, for example, the Western, uh, the American way of war, uh, has a little heart, a British way of war, and uh, Victor Davis Hanson, as we just mentioned, the Western way of war. Um, Actually, all of them are a bit, mm, uh, I don't totally agree with any of them, uh, because I think on the whole, there are there may be re- uh, recurrent patterns, but in fact, there's no one uh, single way of war that stays exactly the same over centuries and millennia.
3: Th- that's quite fascinating. I mean, uh, knowing your background uh, with li- regards to looking into NATO and so forth. So where does deterrence fit in here?
1: Uh I think deterrence is actually something that particular civilizations and cultures are, have a proclivity towards, and it is those who quite don't actually want to go to war. It is those who think that any war will be a defensive war, or any war that really challenges their vital interests will be defensive, and they don't really want to engage in it. They tend to be countries that have somehow been scarred by war before that, and try to find ways in which to turn themselves into hedgehogs, into right. something that is not attractive, or porcupines, something that is not attractive to, for a, an attack, for aggression, and that in somehow uh, shows to the potential aggressor that they would be losing more than they would be gaining from a surprise attack or from any attack against that particular polity. So a deterrent posture tends to be one of states that have no expansionist intentions and that try to keep themselves safe from war and not just from a particular aggressor because they actually are disinclined to wage war.
3: Right so from what I can understand what you're saying is that this has been a continuity throughout throughout history where um, countries have expressed this way of doing um, their let's not say um, waging war but the other way around so nuclear deterrence basically is just a change, changing character of the same thing, is that correct?
1: It's, it's, it's in a way an exceptionally pronounced and focused way of signalling that one doesn't want to go to war by linking it to something that would in fact be unacceptable to both sides. But a deterrent posture of such is something that is quite old and for which very many examples can be found in history. So most classically, for example, the rise of the little Prussian state in the late 17th, 18th century, where the monarchs really didn't want to go to war but since they had a big army to keep everybody else at bay
3: right that's look that this is fascinating um we've had many discussions on this what i would like to get your perspective on is then on that topic with regards to nuclear deterrence and the current russia and ukraine crisis has nato or have the u.s been deterred there is the talk going around this uh and i'd like you i'd like to get your perspective
1: your, your question was, has NATO and has the U.S. been deterred from supporting Ukraine full blast? Is that what you're saying?
3: That's correct. Oh,
1: very much so. And I think it's, it's uh, only in part the Russian sable rattling or the uh, Russian references to, and incidentally, we have nuclear weapons. Um, it's in part also simply self-deterrence. I think particularly the European states are recoiling from anything that would lead them down the slippery slope to a form of war which might involve any form of bombing of their own cities. So a major war that would actually uh, affect their own cities. You could see that NATO members were willing to engage in conflicts and intervene as long as there was practically no possibility of such a war extending itself to the European homeland. So, for example, the intervention in Libya... The intervention uh, in, against Serbia on behalf of Kosovo, all these things were far away against adversaries who really didn't have much of a chance of taking, venting their own anger on uh, the European countries of NATO uh, involved. But in this case, it's really quite clear that they could be affected themselves. And therefore, we see this extreme reluctance to come in in other than a very minimal way.
3: I guess uh, this was a bit of a, a lead-in to another question uh, with regards to our current region here in Australia, with regards to China and Taiwan, uh, given that China is a, a nuclear state. With, are there any lessons that firstly the Chinese or the other way around the Americans are learning part of this Ukraine-Russia crisis?
1: Ah, that's actually asking too much of me in the sense that I'm not a Chinese specialist, Um, but I imagine that the Chinese are watching closely what's been happening in Ukraine. And one of the things that they have seen is that uh, Ukraine was not a pushover. I imagine that will lead them to somewhat greater caution. Should anybody have said, oh, look, our Russian friends are doing this and all eyes are on Ukraine at the moment, let's seize the opportunity to, say, take Taiwan. Um, One can only hope that that's the case. Having said that, um, they also must be um, seeing that the Western powers have not interfered uh, in the the Ukraine war by actually sending troops that they have been self deterred to a very large extent, and that again could give them the opposite ideas. Um, I don't know what the Americans are um, thinking with regard to the Far East at the moment, but there again there is a sort of concern that they are overstretched, that they can't keep their eyes on two balls at the same time, that are in very different parts (laughs) of the globe, that they have um, already signaled over a long period of time that they were really more concerned with what was going on in the the Pacific area. Right now they're being forced almost to put their eyes again on Europe to a greater extent than they had hoped to. But the problem is really uh, that again there, um, in both cases, we have uh, Russia and China as nuclear powers. Nobody really wants to go there. Nobody wants really to uh, risk an escalation of this. Uh, we hope that uh, Russia is also not hope, uh, is not tempted to go for an escalation. We hope that China is not going for an escalation. Um, at the same time, you see that there is uh, no direct uh, effect on Russia. You know, Russia has only ever been interested in, in Europe as it was allies, rather than because of their in, in direct uh, homeland and of their own confrontation, any own confrontation with the Soviet Union, other than in a much larger extent of a An ideological battle for the hearts and souls of people around the world. Now, in the case of Russia today, Russia is not an ideological adversary in that sense of America. Russia cannot in any way pretend to hope to conquer the entire world and to convert the entire world to a Russian ideology. In the Pacific, it looks a bit different. China is something of a different uh, power there because it does still have an ideology that is quite different from that of America, and a whole set of ideas, some of which I think are in heavy competition with the West, namely this whole idea of uh, downgrading the importance of the individual and upgrading the importance of the community as a whole. So there's a bigger ideological debate out there, which I would suppose would make America really still more focused on the Pacific.
3: That's, uh, That's fascinating. So I, I want to bring it back to a higher level again. And um, what I would like to ask again, so there's a the common belief that states are heavily economically integrated, tend not to go to war. What's your view on that?
1: Well, that's a lovely idea. Um, it was, as you know, uh, uh, articulated very um in in a very sophisticated fashion, by Ivan Jan Bloch on the eve of the First World War, who said that any major war would not make sense because of the heavy economic integration between all parties. Um, It was articulated by Norman Angel, the great Illusion, who said that this would be not uh, not at all sensible, but then came the First World War and proved them wrong. Uh, People do very, very silly things for bizarre ideological reasons it's exactly the same if you looked at a russian intervention in ukraine um as i have been pointing out to my russian colleagues when i did a zoom with them even after the war had broken out you know they were on the best way russia was on the best way to be quite a prosperous country and and had all the the opportunities of the west open to it okay there was a maldistribution of uh, riches and of power and all that, but they had the opportunity to go and travel and be open. Ro- Moscow and St. Petersburg are fantastic cities. They've made huge progress in terms of modernization and all that. They're leading in so many ways. They had the world open to them, and they chose to give all this up uh, and or to 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 uh, risk all this and to throw all this overboard for in return for sanctions and some bizarre idea of recapturing some past glory, uh, you can just see how madly uh, some ideologies can uh, overrule any economic sense and any interests that are to do with prosperity, uh, as in the case of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There,
3: right. So, how's Europe coping with this? I mean, this inter interdependency, especially from a uh germany's perspective with their gas pipelines and whatnot how are they coping with that and what what does the future look like with uh with russia's belligerence at the current moment
1: one of the things that i was very much hoping for uh, was that this would be a crisis that would allow the europeans to move more, more closely together and yes the leadership of the european union both the commission and the presidency have done great strides to try to make this possible um, and yet, of course, um, I personally think the European Union is overstretched, and this has been shown again in this context by the great, great divergence of opinion on this matter of countries that are so far away from Ukraine that they feel that they have different concerns that the ch- they should prioritize in you know, a refugee crisis, people from Africa streaming into Europe and the economic differences there, their own unemployment, all the countries that are now deeply affected by the debts that they've incurred from the COVID crisis when they had barely recovered from the subprime crisis that started in 2008. You know, so, um, in fact, um, this crisis could have been a great catalyst. I'm still hoping it will be a catalyst because I'm very much hoping that the Europeans will get closer to each other, but I'm not altogether sure it will happen. That's I'm still keeping my fingers crossed I just can't predict that well enough.
3: Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Look, uh, with with regards to predictions, another another hairy one here. Technology, its effect on war. We're, we're talking more and more about uh, autonomous vehicles and artificial intelligence and whatnot. What does it look like into the future? I mean, we've had technologies throughout history. I mean, I've read a number of your uh, publications in the past. So, if this is you know a changing of character of war, what what, what does artificial intelligence do do to that?
1: First of all, the most surprising thing about this war was that in large part it's being fought as though it was an episode out of the Second World War so in fact not so much with new technology despite the fact that there is uh, Bayraktar there's the uh, the drones coming in from Turkey which has always surprised me that the the Turks deliver these drones to Ukraine, that's quite remarkable Uh, and I encourage all listeners to go and listen to that lovely Ukrainian song Bayraktar that they put like so there's quite little there's relatively little in terms of new technology even though um, cyber war has been an element of this and of course uh, information warfare has been an element of this um i do think there are going to be more developments in, uh, in new technology than are shown presently by the this particular conflict um, and i think that the the doors are wide open to a lot of change there i'm not a technology specialist so i must immediately say where my limitations are but one of the trends that i see one of the important trends that i see is that technology may in the non-too-distant future to some extent already is able to target subsections of a population so for example not only have the russians assassinated individuals that have fled from russia and that they see as traitors while these individuals were outside russia in western countries But they've also launched massive sort of bot attacks on individuals who are tweeting against Russia, and they've also launched all sorts of other uh, little cyber attacks on them. They've, They've declared individual people, persona non grata, that can't go back to Russia or can't travel to Russia. Um, the West has, of course, done similar things by identifying the, some of the oligarchs around Putin and try, somehow ensuring that these oligarchs' um, assets are frozen in the West and that their life is made uncomfortable. Um, I, I see far greater opportunities for something like that in the future, of for this identification of whole groups um, if you simply hack into whole um, internet systems or if you hack into conversations that are taking place in social media and where you simply single out a whole group of people who you know are talking to each other and say we're going to do something to block them to hack into their systems and to make life un- miserable for them. And we're offering them a, a lot of ways in, as it were, you know, we're by increasingly centralising our own uh, control over our banking and, and everything else, um, we are are um, making it possible potentially for them to, to, to switch us off, as, as it were, uh, in in a way uh, by concentrating all our, say, the, the, our household, the way the household runs, the, the, the electricity, the refrigerator, the oven that is switched on, things like that, in one system. Uh, if anybody gets access to that system, they can do an awful lot. You can see this also for the, uh, attacks on the national health system uh, or other uh, institutions that are held for ransom. In order to get their their data back from some hackers, but you can see, you can imagine things like that happening also in hostile ways. Just as the attack on Estonia in two thousand seven by Russia was actually focusing on a much larger polity.
3: In some respect, the question that I would I would ask is then, would those new technologies be able to actually start and finish a war, or is it just part of that you know full tapestry of whatever is available to a state to achieve its ends?
1: Gosh, start and finish a war. Um, Well, if you um, had imagined a war with a power um, confronting another power where they can somehow switch off the entire uh, electricity grid or the entire uh, system in some way, um, that would definitely undermine their ability to conduct a war and um, i can imagine all sorts of things but i'm sure that uh, technology specialists will be even more imaginative and uh, i would strongly recommend reading some science fiction literature at this stage <laughs> Science fiction people who very often develop ideas that are going to be beyond and above what we can imagine as lesser mortals who are still struggling with their mobile phones <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's that's very funny uh, look um are you able to give a bit more on uh, on the grey oration that you'll be giving uh, soon? I'm, I'm assuming it's this afternoon, if, it's, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Tomorrow, yes. Tomorrow. Thursday, um, Thursday the uh, 8th of, of September at, at 1800 here in Canberra. Um, well, one of the things that I am uh, keen to push home is that we have a few misconceptions about war and that we have to rethink how we conceptualise war because we're coming from a very long tradition in the West of seeing things very much in binary terms, either good or bad peace or war, civilian combatant um, day and night you know we have this very binary approach to things when I think that a number of uh, Asian civilizations, see war in a much more holistic way even in defense academies we tend to compartmentalize teaching about low intensity conflict or whatever else you call it there are many many words for it small war operations other than war whatever it is uh, as opposed to major war high intensity war all these things you know we have we tend to compartmentalize we have separate sessions of these when in fact for example, the Second World War was all of the above. You know, It contained insurgencies, it contained guerrilla action, it, it contained um, very high-intensity action, it contained long periods of the phony war um, at some stage, um, inaction, it contained uh, genocide, it contained all sorts of different things, and it is not necessarily a good idea to keep all these separate. You should think of them in a more holistic way, and I think this is particularly true now, when you see that grand strategy is being practiced by very power, nations that have certain tools available to them, where they can use economic leverage, for example, even a country like Russia that isn't really a world superpower any longer has got this economic leverage with its gas and oil exports, but also its grain exports, where they can use that as a tool of strategy alongside its military instrument in a very, very effective way, um, that doesn't allow us just to focus on the military instrument of strategy. So we need to see what's going on and war in a much more holistic way. And we also need to um, rid ourselves of this idea that war is all about big battles. It can be that as well. Um, it is not only that, but it can be that as well. Uh, but it's also it contains things like siege warfare, terrible warfare that affects civilians in particular, as we're just seeing in Ukraine now. This is a very, very old pattern. We've we've seen so much thinking and writing about war concentrate on the actions and experiences and deployment of armed forces, when in fact the victims of war, alongside the armed forces, are very definitely also the civilians. So, looking at the role of civilians in war is much more important than we have given it importance, uh, given it credit for in the past. And that's another little uh, point that I'm trying to make over and over again.
3: Fantastic. Um, so, a, a question from that then: Why did we, or why did we separate these types of war, as you mentioned, small wars, uh, operations other than war, big wars, and so what was the what was the reasoning behind that? And now you're suggesting that we should be thinking holistically about the entire affair.
1: Coming out of any major conflict, strategists immediately pondered what went wrong, and then focused on how that major conflict was fought. What was part of it, what was not. And in, particularly in the Napoleonic Wars, there was actually a relatively small element only of insurgencies outside Spain itself and outside the sort of, uh, Austrian area. Um, and the, the, the Russians um, uh, used types of insurgency a little bit in that war, but there was relatively le- less of that than in, say, the Second World War. So, Clausewitz and Jomini and Rüle von Lilienstein coming out of that war focused first very much on that aspect of major war. What went wrong? How could we have finished that earlier? Uh, after a while, they woke up to the fact that there were other forms of war going on. And then people can get to the illusion of thinking, oh, it's now only small wars that are going on. Yeah. So after the Second World War, long Cold War, people thought all the time about World War Three. Cold War over. Um, other wars come to the fore, which had already always existed, but came for, to the fore um, more frequently. And people said, oh, this is a new form of war. We now have to focus on that. And all of a sudden, a more conventional war happens. And people go back to, oh, it's only conventional war. You know, and that's, I think, the, the fallacy. And it's always been this proclivity of looking at the here and now.
3: Look, um, I thank you very much. Uh, it seems that we've run out of time. I wish I could go on a bit longer, but um, we'll have to end it here. Thank you very much for your time,
0: Professor heiser
1: Thank you very much for having me with you.
0: It's a cardinal question. What have we actually learned from two and a half years of the COVID-19 pandemic? And what have we failed to learn? Everyone agrees that the next bio threat is a matter of when, not if. But what are the future dangers and how prepared are we to face them? To explore these questions and more, Jasmine Latimore speaks with Associate Professor David Heslop.
4: Hi, thank you, David, for joining us today.
0: Hi, Jasmine, nice to see you.
4: Now, it's been over two years since the COVID-19 virus emerged. it was defined as the most significant global public health event to occur in the last century. Um, and at the beginning of the virus, it was deemed the defining struggle of our era. Um, the pandemic reminded us of our vulnerability to emerging infectious diseases, not only in terms of the threat to human security in terms of you know um, human death and illness, but it also kind of reminded us of our global interdependence. It you know, affected um, food security, global supply chains, um, it exacerbated Domestic um, issues, so domestic security issues, um, and it really impacted our way of life. So when we talk about Australia's resilience to biothreats, we're talking about you know Australia's resilience to the whole spectrum. So that's biological weapons in terms of um, bioterrorism and biological warfare, as well as emerging and uh, re-emerging infectious diseases, and the accidental release of harmful biological material from laboratories. So do you think the experience of the pandemic has enabled Australia to be better positioned to prepare for and respond to bio-threats across this spectrum?
2: Yeah, look, um, thanks very much, Jasmine. I, look, I think that's a great question. It certainly has increased the awareness um, of the impact of biosecurity. I think there's been a long time where it hasn't been forefront in the publics or the uh, even political circles that sort of the attention that perhaps it's deserved. And, and that's really, I think, The pandemic itself has highlighted that interplay between politics, economics, broader social implications that these events occur. And in many ways, pandemics are much more than a health event. The health event is, of course, central, but it's it's the broader implications which are far more profound and impactful. So I think it's put preparedness firmly on the policy agenda. So biosecurity preparedness and resilience. And that's resulted in a number of actions that have occurred, um, such as inquiries early on in the pandemic here in Australia and worldwide, but also a a relook and challenge to existing systems that we have in, um, dealing for dealing with biosecurity threats and more, and more broadly crises and disasters in the community. So, you know, it really has been a, a catalyst for change, um, but also has now become a forefront issue.
4: Um, So, I guess you did kind of touch on that in terms of leading inquiries into, you know, how Australia could be better prepared for the future. Um, You know, I think some of the challenges that Australia faced, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, um, were issues concerning bureaucratic setbacks, you know, jurisdictional challenges. Uh, We saw that kind of come to head with the Ruby Princess debacle um, and states and territories not really knowing who should be responsible for um, that event. Uh, We saw, you know, some poor communication, especially in terms of the AstraZeneca vaccine, which led to poor vaccine uptake at a time where we are really needing it and relying on, you know, widespread lockdowns, um, which really affected our way of life. But in large, I would say Australia, you know, prepared for the pandemic or, sorry, responded to the pandemic uh, rather well. Um, What do you think were, I guess, the big key lessons that Australia should take away from the pandemic in regard to, you know, uh, a nation's resilience to bio-threats in terms of, Not only, I guess, these, you know, public health preparedness, but the way that we govern, um, you know, uh, uh, the way that the public has trust in government. Um, And what do you think is, I guess, the early evidence, you know, in addition to these inquiries that we have, um, you know, (laughs) that we have uh, looked at? And what is um, some of the early evidence that Australia is making practical changes to bio threat preparedness, not only in terms of public health um, preparedness, but in terms of you know the way that we govern and um, I guess have emergency response plans that um, prepare for bio threats across the spectrum?
2: Yeah. Look, I think um, you know to to summarise it down to the key. Lessons I think that they would be that pathogens do not respect borders or plans, um, preparedness plans. So, um, there are a number of key lessons that spin off from that. Um, that, uh, firstly, pandemic resilience really is, um, coupled, is a coupled domestic and international issue. Um, so it's not only inward facing, but you've got to think about the resilience of the broader population in the region and globally, um, as part of that preparedness. And that the health considerations, secondly, the health considerations cannot be decoupled from the economic and social factors when considering resilience and preparedness. And the reason why I focus on that is that vulnerable populations, for example, are not only um, so vulnerable in the sense of economic or social factors, um, are also more vulnerable to Poorer outcomes from infectious disease, but also will contribute differently to the spread of an infectious disease, or contribute differently to the risk of a biothreat than those with more resilience. So that needs to be that that nexus or linkage needs to be um, really highlighted as a key lesson that came out of this. So previously, um, health being quite divorced or separate to, or considered to be a separate factor, not really interacting strongly with those other um, important parts of sort of the national fabric. So what what are we doing? Um, Australia is looking at trying to bolster international obligations around the world by uh, the development of a thing called a pandemic treaty, which will be, um, you know, f- taking much further steps than the International Health Regulation as they currently stand, um, requiring countries to do things rather than simply allowing them to self-evaluate, and and in terms of preparedness, um, so uh, that should improve that issue of sort of the international border borderless kind of dimension to pandemic resilience, which is so important. Additionally, Australia is looking at bolstering its international aid and commitment to to sort of soft power in the region, such as public health interventions and other other factors, which I think um, I think are self-evident in their importance in building those capacity building um, in, uh, in in public health in, in, in the region. And so, uh, those two things together are probably the key things that I, I think will contribute to pandemic readiness in the future for Australia.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think you raise a really interesting point there um, in terms of the fact that, you know, viruses, they don't uh, respect borders. Um, and I do think it is important that Australia focuses on helping our neighbours build, um, you know, not only resilience to pandemics, but, you know, resilience to biothreats across the entire spectrum. So, I think in the past, we haven't really framed pandemics as these hard-hitting security concerns. Um, You know, we would think of bioterrorism or biowarfare as a hard-hitting security concern. But at the same time, a lot of the preparedness and response, especially in terms of emergency response plans and, you know, public health preparedness are largely the same. Um, you know, for addressing bio, bioterrorism or for addressing pandemics. And so building that international resilience is paramount, I think, you know, to not only ensuring the security of Australia, uh, but ensuring the global security. So I guess what, how, how do you see the framing of security issues in that regard? Do you think framing uh, pandemics as a hard-hitting security concern, um, I guess, impactful in terms of the resources that we can garner towards preparing and responding to pandemics or biothreats threats across the spectrum.
2: Uh, absolutely, I, I think there are many historical examples of the tight coupling between pandemics or epidemics and security. For example, uh, First World War is a is a very good example of um, the impact of influenza on the um the conduct of a major security event, which was the conduct of the 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 war in Western Europe. Um, and and many commentators feel that that actually was um, so profoundly impactful that it was contributory to the outcome of the war. But more broadly, uh, in terms of risk. Uh, i guess of um Uh, you know security related risks sort of grey zone threats and so on even more broadly um, within the region and the Australian region absolutely you know economic security is tied to our physical and and also our sort of our our military and other dimensions of security um, the many different dimensions of security that contribute to society in the region so a good example being if there was a major meteorological event like a, a cyclone or a earthquake or so on it's quite common to have a Follow on epidemic events that could then snowball into something much larger. Um, and so that would then have implications of disrupting balance of power and security related issues. So it's a, let's just say, it's a completely inter, inter, interdependent network, a complex kind of system that where when one event occurs, it impacts and flows on into others.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think framing, um, you know, pandemics uh, and also, you know, I guess a broader range of threats that we think of as human security threats. Um, for example, climate change, it's important to frame them as security issues because of these flow and effects. I think they, you know, they act as threat multipliers to traditional security threats and thinking about them in this kind of systems thinking way where we see the interconnectedness really helps us to build national resilience. I think in a more meaningful and less kind of hierarchical or kind of uh, you know, putting them into silos, uh, we kind of get a um, a better understanding of how these threats interact, and then can better prepare for them. I guess, in regards to that, what do you see as the major challenges facing Australia in developing greater resilience to bio threats, um, particularly if we think about, you know, how this system interacts?
2: Yeah. Look, uh, I think there are three, um, and they touch on, I think, um, the peculiar aspects for Australia that um, we're fortunate to have um, certain features. So firstly, the risk of encroachment in the first place, um, being in many ways uh, at arm's length from the rest of the world geographically, the issue of encroachment or introduction of bio-threats through whichever route or port of entry into Australia is actually something which is uniquely important for Australia and similar countries who have that separation. Secondly, improving early warning systems. So if you do miss it at the border, so to speak, or at that touch point, can you detect it early enough to do something about it? And then the third would be improving the ability to respond in an agile way. Um, because it's about reducing that delay um, to doing something and being more effective at doing it. So that's a very broad way of saying these are these are the areas where we need to be focused. Um, and all of those three points have many different dimensions to them that should be sort of focused on from both a scientific perspective, but also from a policy and legal perspective.
4: And I'd like to change tack a little bit um, and speak to you about, uh, as I mentioned earlier, climate change as well as pandemics kind of act as threat multipliers to these traditional security challenges. How can you see climate change interacting with the threats posed by biological events, whether that be, you know, a pandemic or, God forbid, a, you know, biological weapon attack? And do you see Australia being able to prepare or respond well to, I guess, these kind of cascading events um, or interacting events?
2: Yeah. So, look, I think this problem of climate change is, is um, the same problem that we've been confronting with um, more traditional bio threats biosecurity security related bioterrorism terrorism related threats for a long time and that's uncertainty and the unknown aspect. So what well, climate change will Turbocharge or sort of drive is the increased frequency of events occurring in the biologic in terms of emergence of new threats. Um, in particular, um, so we call them emerging infectious diseases, for example. So not only might we see an increase in the number of emerging infectious diseases from the natural world, we may see also some inc- climate change may drive, you know, Proliferation in certain ways, for example, that might lead to an increased risk of, for example, engineered or dual purpose kind of pathogens from that kind of research emerging. And so that uncertainty um, leads to a need to be more agile with how you uh, respond to new events so if we don't know what's coming over the horizon we need the ability to adapt to that new event as it occurs and so that's where I think climate change really is going to be driving in particular a need to be much better at what we do so at the moment we're quite focused on certain major threats because historically that's what's happened and we have a way of dealing generically with other problems that's focused around for example previously influenza as as the major respiratory pathogen risk to the the population. That's gonna change um, in the future. And so we need to be able to adapt those policies to respond to that change. For example, vectors uh, like mosquitoes, for example, and other other animals may significantly change their uh, interaction with the human population in Australia. We need to change that. Um, We need to be able to respond to that in policy. Um, We need to also have more emphasis on encouraging innovation in policy, science, um, governance. And so that, that requires a different way of thinking and an
0: openness to
2: change as well.
4: Thank you so much, David, for joining us. It's been great to hear from you.
2: Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: That's everything from the Policy, Guns & Money podcast this week. You've heard conversations with Professor Beatrice Heuser, Chair of International Relations at the University of Glasgow, and Associate Professor David Heslop from the University of New South Wales School of Public Health and Community Medicine. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you
1: next week.